Welcome to 45 Forward, the beginning of the rest of your life. Each week, host Ron Roel and his guests discuss topics of interest to many listeners in their 40s and beyond, including retirement, caring for aging parents, health, lifestyle, and more. It's time to think ahead to the next half of your life, and we'll help you plan it with ease. Now, here is Ron Roel. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of 45 Forward, where our mission is to help you, our listeners, from Los Angeles to Long Island, make your second half of life even better than the first. A few decades ago, when Mary Pfeiffer was a working mother in the midst of a busy career as a clinical psychologist, she realized that she might find some precious time during her days to do what she always wanted to do, to write. She read dozens of books on writing, attended workshops, joined a writer's group, and in 1994, she published Reviving Ophelia, her first of 11 books, four of which became New York Times bestsellers. In today's episode, Mary talks about her latest book, A Life of Light, Meditations on Impermanence, an illuminating memoir that not only offers heartfelt stories, but profound insights and wisdom into loss, change, and hope as we age. Drawing on her own life, which began with a hard, dark childhood, she explores what she learned about how to balance despair with joy, trauma with recovery, attachments with separation from the people and the things we deeply love. Mary, who earned the title of cultural therapist for her generation and mine, will share the coping skills and resilience she has honed during her lifetime. And she will talk about how and she will talk about how each of us can talk inside ourselves and write our own story as a life in light. So now let's meet our guest, Mary Pfeiffer. Mary, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's fun to be on your show, Rod. Great. Okay. So let, let me just say that, uh, Mary, the, the let us. Um, I want to tell our listeners that um, uh, what I just I finished your book a, a few weeks ago, and I have to say that um, it really uh, uh, is uh, what I call a page turner <laughs> for me. Usually, I think about you know mysteries and thrillers, uh, but I did find uh, yours a kind of a page turner that I really wanted to go from from short story to short story, and each one of them had. Uh, a kind of, you know, uh, lesson to it that, that you learned. Uh, and uh, so I ended up going from story to story and until finally, you know, I was like, all right, Ron, uh, you need to go to sleep now. <laughs> the book will be here tomorrow, but, but it was, it was a joy to read and, and a real pleasure. So I'm really delighted to have you on the show to talk about it. Um, Thank you. You know, every writer wants to write a page turner. So that's really a nice compliment. Great. Okay. So let's just jump into the book. And, and I wanted to really start at, at the point um, where you decided to become a writer um, and, and tell us about that experience. You were already, you know, well on your way as a clinical psychologist. And, 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 uh, but you decided that, as I mentioned in the intro, uh, you found a little bit of time and then you decided to, to go for it. You know, I think I always wanted to be a writer. I think um, probably from about five or six, I knew I mm-hmm. Be a writer. I read very early and I read all the time once I started reading. And I've actually read a great deal of my life um, because it's one of my favorite things to do. Um, but what happened was um, my parents had grown up in the Depression. They'd experienced a lot of poverty. Both of them were very concerned about economic security. And my dad told me that. Uh, I couldn't be a writer because um, there was no guarantee I'd make a living. I needed to be a doctor like my mother. Right. So I could earn a living and support myself. He didn't have much faith I would ever marry. He didn't think I was pretty enough to get married. 
So he's very concerned that I'd be able to support myself. Then about the same time that my dad told me all this, I was just eight or nine when he said this, uh, I had written a sonnet for my school teacher that I'd worked on very hard. It was actually, it was to me a beautiful sonnet comparing mm-hmm. life to the seasons, which of course had been done many times by other people. But to me, it was a fresh idea. This teacher returned my sonnet with this red C on it and the word trite. <laughs> well, that convinced me that actually I couldn't be a writer because not only had my dad explained, only a very few great people were writers, and they weren't girls from Beaver City, Nebraska, by the way. Um, but also then, even in Beaver City, Nebraska, I could only make a C on the sonnet that I labored on. So I just gave up on myself. And... Um, I decided I, I couldn't write, uh, that it wasn't practical. And uh, I didn't write again until I was about 45. Wow. And then I decided, you know, I've always wanted to do this. And I don't care if I'm good or not, I'm going to do it. I'm going to try to learn it. And writing is like almost any other profession. It takes about 10 years to learn to be a good writer. Um, it takes 10 years to learn to be a good cook or a good um physician or a good therapist, good violinist. Um, And I worked on it for about, probably not 10 years, but I worked on it very hard for years and years uh, before Reviving came out. It came out uh, when I was 47. That was the year my daughter graduated from high school. She was a senior in high school uh, this semester it Mm -hmm. came out. And um, Nobody expected that book would do very well. Um, my editor told me it would be a small book. It wouldn't mm-hmm. receive much promotion. I certainly didn't expect it would do very well. I had no reason to think I, I would have any special capacity to reach people outside of my own friendship group. And so it was just a beautiful surprise when so many people cared about that particular book. I think the, the, the success of that book had a great deal to do with its timing. It was a moment in time when the culture was really struggling with what to do with teenage girls and teenagers in general. And the old models for what to do weren't very useful. And I had a different idea. And so I, I think the book ended up being successful because of that. And thanks to that book, Ron, I've been able to sell books and write for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. In fact, by now, I've been a writer longer than I was a therapist. I always used to say I'm a therapist and I do some writing. Now I say I'm a writer who used to be a therapist. Mm. At the same time, your your therapy did inform you, you know, and I think that that's the thing that I I always like to really impress upon young people and and people really of all ages as to how progressive your career is. And just because you think you're doing something now. Uh, especially for people in their 20s, it's like you you have no idea. Uh, and, and there will be a kernel of what you do now and what you do in the future, but it will inform your life in ways that you can't predict and you just won't know. Um, so I, I think you're right that, that you did hit a particular time, uh, but you were ready to. And, and like, I think a lot of people just think, oh, of writing is, uh, you know, oh, you're a creative person. It's like, well... Yes, but there's a discipline to it. And I think that your background sort of uh, in nature and as a natural observer and, you know, getting a PhD 
in psychology really helped you uh, develop that discipline in writing. Um, and um, I think too that you mentioned in the chapter when you talk about it, the, one of the things I liked is the way you talk about writing, the sort of this double process. So talk about that a little bit, what, what you mean by that. It, it enables you to live life twice. Well, writing is, is that it's best thinking. And um, there's, from my point of view, sort of two lifetimes for mm-hmm. writers. One of them is just lived experience. You're at a birthday party or you're at a movie or you take a walk around the lake. And then there's an opportunity to reflect on that experience and see if there's a deeper meaning or if there's a connection you can make between that experience and, and something else that's powerful to you or important to you. So I, I really loved writing as an opportunity to um, organize myself in a more um, interesting and intentional way. For example, I've written actually two memoirs, and both of them were in response to questions I had about my own life. My first memoir was Seeking Peace, and it was really written after um, I'd had a long speaking career and was worn out by it and Mm -hmm. was struggling to understand the effect of all the travel and speeches on my myself, my true self. Um, And then this current memoir, um, A Life in Light, um, was really my attempt to understand my whole life in terms of the concept of light and darkness, Mm -hmm. shadow and sparkle. Because my life, as I believe most people's lives, are a combination of the two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that because that leads directly into just the well, the title itself. You know, life and light, and you know your your metaphor, and, and both literally and metaphorically, your um, your your association and theme of light. Um, so, how did you did you? Was that something that sort of accrued as you were writing it, chapter by chapter, like, oh, this this is the theme, this is really, and I and I guess you mentioned to me too that you or you mentioned in the book as well that you you started writing it during during COVID, right? Yeah, I had thought uh, probably I was through writing, but um, when COVID came around, we were very isolated, as were almost all other people. Our family was far away, and um, I realized I needed. A project for myself to keep from despair. And I also realized that there was something I knew from living my life that might be useful to other people in terms of coping with darkness and loneliness and depression. And uh, so I conceived of this book before I wrote it. I was very aware it's going to be about light and darkness. Mm-hmm. Um, and I conceived of this book as a way to talk about various incidents in my life that had been challenging and difficult where I was able to rescue myself or be rescued by someone um, that then became a story of darkness moving into light. And it turns out, I think almost everyone could write a life in light. Almost everyone could go through their life and find incidents in which something happened to them and through their own resilience, and self-agency, they turned it into a better moment than mm-hmm. it perhaps was. The other thing is I'm extremely uh, sensitive to light. I love light, seek light, 
I'm always sitting in a sunbeam if I can find one. I can't uh, hardly bear to be in basement rooms or rooms without windows. And uh, I'm just outside. I was outside all the time as a kid. In the summer, I'm outside all the time now if I can be. Uh, and light has a very powerful effect on me. Uh, there's some bipolar in my family. And mm -hmm. I read in a research study one time that bipolar people have an extremely sensitive relationship to light, that mm -hmm. that's a diagnostic tool. Well, I'm not bipolar, but I think that light sensitivity may be part of my own um, psyche. Yeah, I think that that's, uh, to me, uh, as I was reading through it and going through your various iterations of light and darkness, I, I did find myself um, really drawn to it in ways I hadn't expected. It's, it's really a powerful metaphor. And, and I, I thought back to my own childhood and like, and, and while I, I like the different seasons, it's, you know, summer is clearly my favorite in, in spite of the heat and humidity, of, you know, the Northeast. It's like, I was like, well, why is that? And it's like, it's because of the light. It's because the long days. That's what I really glory in, um, and it just isn't, you know, interesting, you know, the, you know, light and dark. But then light itself is a is a fascinating phenomenon. You know, it's basically, you know, colorless and yet, you know, full of color. It reveals colors. Um, you know, so it it and it's just this sort of primordial thing, right? In the beginning, you know, God creates light. You know, the separate from darkness. So it, it's a really uh, I love the image, and I think it's something that um, will resonate with me for quite a while. Um, well, thank you. And, you know, in the book, I, I write about my first memories of light. When I was a baby, I remember mm -hmm. experience. And I didn't encode it verbally because I didn't have words at that time. But I have a very clear memory of looking up uh, at dapple light through a tree. That mm -hmm. dancing. And I, I remember as a baby just watching that and just thinking it was so beautiful, you know. Mm -hmm although I didn't have the word for beautiful, but there was something about it that was just so enticing to me. Right. Let me just transition to, from the light, but you know, those sorts of experiences to your relationship with nature, because that to me was also quite profound. Um, uh, and your descriptions are very specific. You know, it's not just, uh, oh, I was with the birds and I was with the animals. It's, you would identify these specific birds and you would know when, specific birds sang and when they they you know stopped and when were the last ones before dusk so um talk a bit about that because i think that's something that you and i have shared when we were you know small uh, children um and before you know our, before we started our conversation today we, we started talking a bit about um just the you know the, the loss of this relationship with nature in today's society yeah, well, I was very fortunate. I grew up in natural settings. I lived in, um, well, I was a baby in the Ozarks. Then I lived in Aurora, Colorado, which mm -hmm. at that time was a kind of a, almost a little town on its own. With uh, the the street we lived on was on the edge of town in a dirt road in mm -hmm. Aurora. And then later, I lived in two little Nebraska towns: Dorchester, Nebraska, and Beaver City, Nebraska. In both towns, we lived on the edge of town. And so there were rivers, there were a um, uh, lot of trees along the rivers. There was just a lot of uh, open land and land that had um, 
hills and places you could walk. I also had, I think, three aunts and uncles who lived on farms. Mm-hmm. And farms are one of the best environments children can be in. These were old-fashioned farms with animals and apple orchards and big barns with haylofts. And uh, I just loved being on farms and working with animals and being around the the uh, cousins as we were playing in different places around the yards. Yeah, it uh, you know that's when I was growing up uh, on Long Island uh, in, in the fifties. You know there were a lot of farms and uh, and there was a lot of there were farms in the back of my house along with the woods. And there is something about that 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 I, I found compelling um and also um just the vista is different as you well know you're you're in the midwest and that's something that i think uh growing up in the suburbs you start to lose is that sense of open space and i'm glad that there are there are some you know movements where i am to preserve open space um and i think that's some of it that it's it's nice that you have open woodlands but there's something about open plain space that i think that we miss in the Northeast uh, and, and don't, I think a lot of people don't see it there, you know, because uh, unfortunately, you know, your areas flyover country as they call it. Uh, but I think that people really would benefit just to, to really have a sense of, of to spend some time, you know, in, in you know, looking at, at, out at the plains and seeing, getting a sense of space and vastness. You know, uh, I think I wrote this in one of my books, but, For Nebraska, we don't have an ocean. We don't have uh, mountains. So what our beautiful feature is, is the sky. The sky is our Rocky Mountains. Mm -hmm. And what we do have is just this enormous flat land with an endless horizon. And there's places in Nebraska where you can go out and lie down on the road at night Mm -hmm. and see stars uh, more clearly than anywhere Yeah. Hold up on that, Mary. We're going to take a quick break, but hold that thought. I I want to keep that image in my head. Uh, But we're going to take a quick break. Uh, When we come back, we'll be talking much more with best-selling author Mary Pfeiffer. So folks, don't go anywhere. We have lots more to talk about. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Planning for college? Tune in to Getting In, a college coach conversation for tips, techniques, and insider perspectives. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton, a former admissions officer at the University of Pennsylvania and featuring her fellow admissions and college finance experts from Bright Horizons College Coach. The show shares what colleges are really looking for and how to highlight your hard-won achievements for the best chance at success. New episodes air every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. 
You are listening to 45 Forward. To reach Ron Roel or his guest on the program, please send an email to ron.roel at gmail.com. That's ron.roel at gmail.com. Now back to 45 Forward. Welcome back, folks. We're talking with Mary Pfeiffer, a best-selling author of 11 books, most recently her memoir, A Life in Light, Meditations on Impermanence. Uh, now, before the break, we were talking about Mary's relationship to the land. We were talking about Nebraska and the ability to, to to lie down and see the stars, which is, I guess, also, you know, partly you can get away from some of the light pollution of the Northeast, right? I mean, I think that's a... Yeah. This is out in the Santos of Nebraska, which are one of the most beautiful places on Earth, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, so that that's one thing. The stars outside of the cities are beautiful. Another thing I, I really like about Nebraska is so different than most places in the world right now is low population density. Mm-hmm. And I've always lived in places where there weren't very many people. And when I come to New York City, for example, I love it. I just love it. I hit the museums. I hit the wonderful restaurants. I see a lot of people that are really interesting that are in the publishing business that have worked with me over the years. And um, I'm just amazed at how exciting New York is. But after about four days of it, I'm tired. And I'm real happy to come back to um, to a place where it's it's just quieter and people move more slowly. Um, so it's, I think everything place is beautiful, has capacity to be beautiful. I think where we grow up has a tremendous impact on how we see the world. For example, my daughter lives in Canada right now, mm-hmm. and she lives in an area where it's naturally forested. And I think it's beautiful that the, I was just up there seeing the maples in October. But on the other hand, um, after a while, I feel like, well, there's too many trees here. I can't see the sky as well as I'm used to. That's just some kind of imprinting on nature where a certain kind of landscape is so um, basic that, that we yearn for it. I yearn for it when I'm away from it. Yeah. I think that um, wherever you are, if you can have some association with the nature where you are, it's important. And I think that one of the things that um, that we discovered during COVID uh, when we were cooped up and we had to be socially isolated from people was that people really did better, much better when they got to be outside and they could take walks and they could be, you know, in, in a natural setting and, there is something um, calming about it. There is something connecting about it. So, you know, we have this, you know, human-centric view of the world. And I think sometimes when you can get out of that and recognize, see yourself as part of a larger system, then it sort of takes the stress away. You can kind of say, okay, you know, the, I'm part of something bigger and it's okay, you know? And, and so I, I think that that's something that really came out as a result of the, of, of the pandemic. One of the, one of the few things that came out that was, that was really a value to people. I think that's right. I live on a, I, I live by a city park with a, with a dam and a lake and this lake, uh, the dam just looked like the Easter parade during COVID people were out all the time, but you know, Ron, another thing in terms of the natural world is, it's got animals in it. Mm. And I've always loved birds. I've always loved small animals, turtles, foxes, coyotes. Um, And I think during the pandemic, there was actually kind of a shortage of dogs and cats. 
because mm. there's something very calming about animals too. And um, they're very helpful to humans in terms of reminding us that we're not, we're not alone, you know, and we're not the only species. Um, so birds, I think especially are just so, so important for the, the, the joy I have in my life. Yeah. I think that uh, one of the, some of the chapters I enjoyed most of, you know, besides your rescuing the animals and besides your, you know, being able to, you know, sit quietly and, and see you know, the progression of birds singing as you got toward dusk um, was, um, uh, well, when you went out to, you follow the, the migration of the Chinook salmon and also the Sandhill cranes. Um, yeah. Because that, that to me, you know, so you were appreciating that we're all on on different journeys, right? And and you were sort of partaking in theirs and sort of seeing it. And I think again, it sort of connects you, like, oh yes, we're we're all on interesting journeys. Yeah, yeah, you know, the sandtail cranes are the number one birding site in the world. Um, is during Sandhill Crane migration in Nebraska, and that's about 80 miles from Lincoln, where I live. Mm -hmm. And every year, uh, millions of these beautiful, big, four or five foot tall birds land on a very small section of the Platte River. Mm -hmm. And they come in, they wheel in at sunset, and they make this sound that, it's like a sound a dinosaur probably made. It's a sound I feel like I heard before I was born. You know, mm. It's so primal. And um, I had had so many people over the years come stay with me and go out and sit in Queensland for that experience. And um, whoever does it, whatever year it is, sometimes it's bitterly cold winter weather, sometimes it's warm spring weather. Um, people are, are awestruck. They mm -hmm. stop speaking at some point. They're, they're just awestruck by this phenomena of the sky filled with these large, beautiful birds. So I really encourage you, Ron, and all your listeners to consider uh, looking into the Sandhill Crane migration in Nebraska and mm -hmm. coming out some year for it. Okay. It occurs between Valentine's Day and St. Patrick's Day. Mm. It's time year. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, I'm sure it's spectacular. Uh, and And I think that to me, all of these migrations are, are spectacular. Um, you know, whether you just, when you think about millions and tens of millions of birds, and I guess what, I guess there are three major flyways over North America. Um, uh, but just, you know, the, the migration just is, 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 a, is an amazing mystery to me. And, and year after year, you know, I do see, you know, that, that birds come back and I'm like, I know this is the same bird that made it through, you know, myriad um, dangers and they're back to the same property, to the same bush. And I just find that amazing. <laughs> well, you know, it, it makes you consider like, what is the most intelligent animal? Naturally, we think we're the most intelligent because we talk to each other and all can agree on that in a sort of a self-centered way. But when you actually think about what animals are capable of doing and all the multiple intelligences they possess, the, the, really the question of who is the most intelligent animal uh, it doesn't make any sense, does it? Because mm -hmm. there's so many kinds of intelligence. 
and and many of the kinds that that um, animals possess, we don't we don't possess. Exactly. <laughs> um, so I just wanted to shift a little bit from relationships with with animals to relationships you talk about with your family and friends as they evolve through life, because your friends and family have you know played it obviously a very important part. Um, I think that, uh, and a lot of it's about the connection with. Uh, with friends and family and also the separation and, and how you reconcile the necessary, you know, and building attachments, which are critical and then sort of letting go too. Yeah. Well, one thing I figured out writing a life in light is that I'd probably spent the first five decades of my life, six decades building attachments, connecting to people, finding people to love, I'm very lucky I've lived in the same town 50 years as an adult. So over that time, I've had a lot of opportunity to make friends with different people um, in different groups around town. So I have a lot of decades long friendships. Uh, But the last decade or so of life, my life right now, for example, is more about learning to detach than learning to attach because friends are, are moving, they're dying, they're changing in ways that that make them make our relationships different than they've been historically. My uh, my grandchildren have grown up by now, so these these little children that just had the capacity to just absolutely amaze and thrill me every time I saw them are now in college or in Canada, mm. and I've realized that one of the great tasks of people in their sixties and seventies is learning to accept loss and impermanence and and learning to um, let go of things without grasping or clinging, trying to hold on to a past that that is no longer possible. Um, I I think it's a great challenge. It's maybe the major developmental challenge of people my age. It's been, I say it's been hard for me. I don't think it's probably been any harder for me than anyone else, but it's it's been a very hard challenge. Part of it is is going to funerals. Part of it is I'm a very relationship-oriented person and mm-hmm. very family-oriented person. So seeing uh, my family grow up in a way has, has um, it, it's it's really been difficult. I had a lot of emotional investment there. On the other hand, the other side of it is there's a there's really a great deal of freedom and joy uh, that comes with stopping an argument with reality and accepting what is and in learning the skills to be present with each day, with each person, um, learning the skills of gratitude and um, setting an intention for a day. And um, these things can really make a difference. I think in terms of living happily without the relationships that were always part of a life. Yes. Um, and I think it gives you some time to reflect on, you know, uh, in the writing on, on your relationships. And, and um, I found it interesting, you know, going from talking about, you know, you're being raised by your mother to you raising your, your children. And, and I wonder, um, I guess thinking too about how, your mother influenced you because I, I I was struck by the fact that your mother was a doctor in I guess in the fifties and sixties, which was not usual. Many 
um, working mothers. They were working, but not as doc- a doctor, uh, especially, um, you know, in small towns. And so did you feel that she influenced you in ways that you hadn't thought about in terms of your professional career, your aspirations to do something that uh, perhaps your father didn't think you would do, <laughs> at least initially? You know, my mother was a tremendous influence on me. And I loved her very much. I, I loved her just so much from the beginning until she died. And I was the primary person seeing her through her own death. Mm-hmm. But um, it was a very interesting relationship. She was a very smart person, a very moral person, someone who did a great deal of thinking about the right way to do things. Uh, but almost from the beginning, I think I was um, – maybe 18 months, two years old when she started medical school. And my dad was away and I had a brother uh, 11 months younger than me. So almost from the very beginning, my experience of my mother was she was rarely around. Mm-hmm. And this this never stopped. I mean, she went from medical school to being a very busy doctor in small towns. And in between the time she was in med school and starting private practice in these little towns, I spent away uh, – a year away from her, mm-hmm. which was, was the great tragic year of my life. I, I would not describe my entire childhood as dark. I'd describe my entire childhood as full of dappled light, dark and light, dark and light. But the year that I was away from my mother, I would describe as dark because mm-hmm. I was down in a trailer behind my aunt's house in the Ozarks with my dad gone a lot and, and in a, a dark trailer and just so lonely for my mother, just so lonely for my mother. But as a child, um, I had a strange, a kind of a strange experience uh, in terms of a relationship with a mother because I had so much respect for her and I really enjoyed every minute I had with her. And uh, I yearned for her, I yearned for her because so much of the time she wasn't home for dinner or she wasn't at a school play or at a performance. I. Uh, did things like ride with her when she went on house calls because she was a great conversationalist, great storyteller, and someone who also could reflect on the experiences of the the day and extract a moral lesson. Um, So, for example, one of the experiences I wrote about in one book, I forget which book, was she had a guy who was out in a field doing some farm work and a crop duster came over and sprayed him with DDT. So he's out in his field, his clothes, his face, his body drenched in DDT. And uh, he gets off his tractor and heads for his car because he's having trouble breathing. And he drives his car into town, drives Mm -hmm. it right to my mom's office. He's starting to have a lot of trouble breathing. He goes up to the reception desk and said, I need to see the doctor right away. And the nurse or the receptionist wasn't particularly attentive at that moment and said, well, take a seat. It'll be a few minutes. So he politely went and sat down, even though he was suffocating, and uh, promptly keeled over on the floor. Wow. My mom, they got him back. My mom saved his life. But later when she was talking to me about this guy, she said, Burge Lofgren, his name was Burge Lofgren, is the kind of guy that would rather die than be rude or put himself forward as special. So she could she could make little points like that about people that became very interesting to me. In that way, I think Ron, she primed me to become a psychologist. 
because she was very interested in what the behavior of people meant. And I'm very interested in that myself. Yeah, I think that's um, certainly uh, that sense of curiosity. I think that that your your mother instilled in you, um, you know, is a uh, is something that that really has an impact on you. You know, to be to be curious about the world and and how things are work and what things mean. I think is something that's really of value. And and I think you just picked that up by osmosis by being around. Um, mm -hmm. And um, I, I think that. Um, uh, I want to ask you some more about that, but we're going to come up with another break uh, very shortly. So I, I just want to hold on to that thought once again about the relationships of, of your children to their parents. Um, and uh, so, folks, we're going to take another quick break, but don't come go anywhere. We'll be talking much more in our last segment with best-selling author Mary Pfeiffer. So we'll be right back. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Tune in to Melody Edmondson's The Space of the Waste radio program. This companion piece to her successful guidebook series, The Space of the Waste, focuses on body types and how to make your waist length flattering, no matter what your body type is. Guests include designers, merchandise managers, factory owners, and more. You'll also find out what accessories will complement your body shape and waist length. Tune in every Tuesday at noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Variety. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Tune in every Friday to get your weekend kickoff early. Join the legendary G. Keith Alexander for What's Hot Harlem America. The flagship show of the new Harlem America Digital Network has something for everyone. From the latest in entertainment to empowerment, health and wellness, and more, we'll bring you a variety of fresh viewpoints, voices, and ideas. What's Hot Harlem America with G. Keith Alexander can be heard every Friday at 1 p.m. in New York and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice of America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to 45 Forward. To reach Ron Rowell or his guest on the program, please send an email to ron.roel at gmail.com. That's ron.roel at gmail.com. Now back to 45 Forward. Welcome back, folks. We're talking with Mary Pfeiffer, uh, best-selling author of 11 books. Uh, we're talking mostly about her recent memoir, A Life in Light, Meditations on Impermanence. Um, now, before we continue, I just wanted to mention that you can find out much more about Mary and her books and read her blog by going to her website, which is marypfeiffer.com, Mary, P-I-P-H-E-R.com, where you can also order her books from various outlets. 
Um, uh, and if you go to my website, uh, rowellresource.com, you could also read a very interesting uh, guest essay that Mary wrote in the New York Times a few months ago called How to Build a Good Day When I'm Full of Despair in the World. <laughs> some ver- some light for us uh, as we go through these troubled uh, times today. Um, so before the break, we were talking about uh, Mary's relationship with her mother and what she learned from her mother. And one of the things I wanted to ask her before we get into our last segment about wisdom light is just a little bit more about um, how things seem to have changed between us and our children. And certainly uh, what I really enjoyed about some of your stories, Mary, was was your your stories about you and your siblings and your friends playing in your own world. And I and I recall that as a kid too, that there was a little bit this um sort of helpful um separation from our parents where they would say to us, just go outside and play, you know, <laughs> leave me alone. And and so you didn't have uh cell phones. You you had your imagination and uh you had your friends. And I think that was a a very useful time, a creative time for kids and just sort of to recognize that there was this whole child world and there was a relationship to the, to the adult world, but there was a separation that enabled you to be yourselves. You know, because, especially because I grew up in a small town, um, children could go anywhere alone after they were about five or six years old. Uh, most kids had bicycles and, uh, they were expected to take care of themselves in the summer. Their mothers or fathers uh, had their own plans. Parents weren't as child-centered as they are now. Mm-hmm. And so, and I don't know if the world was safer or not. You know, now the world wasn't nearly as safe as it seemed in the 50s and 60s, that there was a great deal going on that was unreported. Um, but on the other hand, it, it people thought it was safer. And so children were able to do more things without adult supervision. It's also in my case, my my young childhood before junior high was uh, before television. Mm-hmm. And so children wanted to be entertained. They usually had to go find some other children and, and do something with them. And in the, in the winter, I remember we read a lot. We played a lot of board games because um, that's what we played with animals. We had pets. Uh, and in the summer, we generally played with other children. And I happened to be in my neighborhood, the oldest child. And so I did a lot of telling stories at night, uh, telling ghost stories at night as we lay on the grass and orchestrating. Um, we had kind of a tornado shelter, root cellar, which became um, just a wonderful vehicle for stories. And we could pretend it was a cave we were in hiding from uh, attackers. We could pretend it was a place we all lived after our parents had been taken away by the Germans and we were taking care of ourselves in the city in, in uh, during World War War. We could make up anything we wanted to. We had a lot of clubs. We had, we had a swimming pool we could go to and all play all afternoon. I think it was wonderful for children. And I know it's a different world for children. Now, I know from my my own grandchildren that live in an urban environment, um, they spend a lot of time. They have uh, organized activities, sport, mm-hmm. and so on. But uh, they spend a lot of time on devices and a lot of time at home in their rooms. Um, so it's, it's just a very different world. And I, I don't want to say it's better or worse. I like the world I grew up in. I feel lucky and privileged that I was able to grow up in that 
world. And I'd like us to take good enough care of planet that children always have the op- option to grow up in a world that's that's got lots of animals and places to play. Yes, I I, I hope so too. Um, you know, the world has changed, and and, and it's it's hard to. Um, it, it, it doesn't really do much good to place a judgment on it. It just is what it is. But there are things you can do to adapt and, and recognize it. I mean, one of the things that you um, talk about, you know, is separation, leaving your family. And certainly this has become, you know, well, one of the things that I look at, uh, I've studied myself is just the issue of family caregiving. And of course, this makes a big difference when you have a mobile society and, and then you're your adult children move away and you know, you're no longer with your grandchildren and then they, how do you get the care, you know? And, you know, I, I, it's easy to hearken back and say, well, in the old days, the family stayed in the community and, you know, parents, you know, live with their grandparents and they're all, you know, but in fact, that was true for a relatively short time. And before that, right, we were pioneers and people, you know, got up and, and moved, you know, across the country. So, this mobility has been with us for a while and just is something that I think we have to basically just come to terms with and understand. And um, as you said earlier, um, accept- acceptance is a big part of it and, and making the best of situations and, um, and uh, when, whenever you can see your, your, your folks. Um, you know, I, I think about even, um, you know, the, the advantages of technology you um, uh, comes about in in sometimes you know unexpected ways um even even for me to 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 meet you um came through um an old friend of mine uh that you know i was my editor at newsday and she, she was a very special editor and then we became, we stayed friends over the years and with her husband and and um uh i i um you know, I, through another friend, I, I heard about this article you had written in the, in the Times, so I knew about you. But then one day, um, through email, we reconnected with my friend Debbie and her husband Barry, and and um, you know, over dinner, they said, "You know, you've had this show forty-five forward. We know this woman who would be great on your show. <laughs> she just happens to live in Lincoln, where where they grew up um, and had family." So. You know, technology can do wonderful things as well. You know, um, as isolating. So it's it's something that you know it, it's it's neutral, but it's what we make of it. You know, especially as we get older, because there are opportunities to to use it to reconnect with people. Well, absolutely, and uh, you know, I, I think it's difficult for all ages this geographical separation. Mm-hmm. I agree with you completely. In fact, there's an Irish word uh, I can't remember right now, but basically before the the younger generation left Ireland to come to America during the potato famine and the years of the great migrations across the Atlantic, uh, they had a they had a wake uh, when they left because families knew they'd never see each other again. Nobody was doing travel back and forth across Europe, especially poor people, and. Um, it's it's much better now. There's there's all kinds of ways to stay in touch, but I also think it's it's very um, it's a difficult situation, especially when people are uh, dealing with aging parents that are far away. Mm-hmm. I remember one time I I loved I had five aunts and I loved all five aunts and one of my 
aunts had been a homesteader up on the Canadian-Idaho border. And she'd end up, her husband was a, a logger, and she'd ended up being a high school or a, a, a elementary school principal. So eventually her husband died, and she's old, and she's in a nursing home. And I'm calling her from Lincoln, and I'm I'm telling her how much she means to me and, and how much I love her and hope she's doing okay and telling her a little about my life. And all of a sudden she interrupts me and goes, that's all fine, Mary, but I need someone to take me to the bathroom. <laughs> well, much as I love her, I can be of no use to her right now. She doesn't need someone who loves her. She needs someone there who who can help her with, with her immediate problems. And I, I think that's a, a dynamic that's just very hard to escape uh, as as people are separated and older. And it's going to be really interesting, Ron, because our generation of baby bloomers we're the we're the pig in the pot. We're the python in uh, in the pig. You know, the just the or the pig in the python. They're just the giant demographic bullshit that's marched across the last fifty years. And now that we're getting older, how are we going to? make these decisions about where we live and where we get the help we need and who we live with. And it's just really going to be interesting, I think, how we we make these decisions. And our children, so many of us have children. I have, of my close friend group of women, I think I have three or four children who are uh, women friends who have children living in foreign countries, not even just far away in the States, but living in Sweden or Germany or Japan and so on. Yes, uh, boy, we're we're coming up to the close here. I just wanted to work in a few more questions before we go, and that is, um, you know, so the the uh, the interesting thing about your title is is your title and your subtitle, right? You know, uh, life and light, um, but also meditations on impermanence, and I think that's the thing that we struggle with is is being able to how to um, how to come to terms with impermanence. Um, and, and, and yet, uh, in your last chapter, well, one of your last chapters, you talk about how do you want to be remembered? So what, what, how did you tell us a little bit about those thoughts about what is important about being remembered? Well, I actually, uh, to me, I'm, I'm not particularly interested in being remembered for my work. I, I know that's, uh, unusual, especially uh, for for uh, most writers, care a great deal about that, and I'm more, more interested in being remembered um, as a mom, very traditionally as a mom, as a friend, um, and um, I'd like the the ideas I had that were good to be remembered by people. That is perhaps a way of thinking positively about continuation. Um, that if we've had a good influence in the world our ideas and the impact of our lives will have some benefit to people who live on. Um, you know, I'm not at all afraid of death. If I were to drop dead tomorrow, I've had, from my point of view, I've had a wonderful life. It's mm -hmm. not been a happy life all the time. It's had a great deal of tragedy and sadness, but it's been a really, um, it's been a really complicated, interesting, intense life where I was able to have an extraordinary number of learning experiences about the human race and an extraordinary number of really interesting connections with people and animals. And from my point of view, 
that's what people get. That's the ultimate we get. And so it's interesting. I, I don't, I don't fear death. Um, the only things about uh, dying or being gone that concern me are, are the people I'd leave behind and mm. the people who struggle with that. But for myself, it's just never been for me an issue. Yeah. I think that what you say is really important. And I think that a lot of people, uh, accomplished people, you know, have a similar perspective, even though certainly, as you pointed out, that you want to be able to, you know, that, that, that providing something useful for people, I think you once said, gives you joy. So that aspect of being useful, but it's in connection with people. And that from what I've read about a lot of people as they get older, they realize that, that, you know, what they think about is not their accomplishments, but their relationships. Absolutely. And I think that's a, a really important uh, point to take as we leave. And unfortunately, uh, that's all the time we'll have for today. Um, I would love to invite you back. You know, I'd like to explore your other books as well, especially a lot of them deal with women, uh, which is, I think, important for me as a man to explore and, and constantly um, evolve my own thinking. Uh, but folks, um, if you if you miss my uh, conversation with Mary today, uh, you can listen to it as a podcast on voiceamerica.com. Uh, just search for my show, 45 Forward, and you can listen to it on Apple, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or my uh, website, rowellresources.com. Just click on the 45 Forward tab. Uh, Mary, if people want to get in touch with you, I know I know you have a, yes, you, you've got a, a Facebook page, but then you've got your, your website. Or that that the best you way to get? You can contact me through the website. Through the website. Very good. Okay. All right. Okay, folks. So be sure to join me next Monday, 12 noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern. On the cusp of Election Day, we'll be talking with uh, Kieran O'Connor, a leading staff member of the Braver Angels, a group whose bold mission is to bridge the partisan divide and bring Americans together. So until then, folks, keep moving forward, 45 forward. Thank you for tuning in to 45 Forward. Please join your host, Ron Rowell, for another great show next Monday at 12 noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We wish you a great week. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the voice